Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. UK's only Things Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this week's episode, Philippa Childs, Head of Entertainment and Media Union Beck2, on what needs to be done to protect our creative industries, Mel Sims, Thought for the Week, and Josiah Mortimer's Radical Roundup. Everyone, hello. You're very welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Zapper, and we've got a fabulous episode lined up for you this week. Our special guest will be Philippa Childs, who is head of Bechtu, the Broadcasting, Entertainment, Communications and Theatre Union, part of Prospect, but very much autonomous in terms of its policy and its campaigning work. She gives us a great insight into what Bechtu is doing on behalf of its members and with its members to defend them in the current terrible, uncertain and negative times for that sector. We've also got a cracking thought for the week from Professor Mel Sims, talking about why it's so important to have a seat at the bargaining table. And, well, here's a riddle for you, listeners. What do you call an employer that wants to be accredited as a living wage employer that doesn't actually pay the living wage? Well, you'll have to listen to Josiah Mortimer's Radical Roundup to get the answer on that one. Well, we've got so much good stuff on this week's show, I really don't know quite where to start, but I think the best place to begin is with Mel's Thought for the Week. Now, Mel, as you know, is Professor of Work and Employment at the University of Glasgow, and this week she looks at what the post-COVID industrial relations landscape could look like. This week, I've been thinking about work and employment as we move into a world beyond the COVID crisis and what role trade unions have in that. At workplace level, I think the answer is pretty clear. Our unions have long fought to ensure our workplaces are as safe as they can be, and they've done a superb job in continuing that work during the COVID crisis, and I'm sure that will continue for a long time to come. But more widely, it's important that there are spaces for unions in wider discussions about the economy once the crisis has subsided. The public during this time has radically reassessed what services they deem to be essential, as well as reassessing the role of the state in general during an international crisis. So what matters now is whether those reassessments can be embedded in a shift of thinking about how work and employment are regulated. And it seems to me that there are likely to be multiple spaces over the coming months and years where the importance of collective regulation can be argued, even to a government that's not ideologically inclined to accept that position. Slightly counterintuitively, working with employers is a particular priority. And I say that because I'm a researcher with a particular interest in the international histories of industrial relations systems uh, in many countries around the world. And if we look back to times where there have been major shifts in ideas about how work and employment are regulated, both in the UK and elsewhere, we see that building alliances with employers is really important to shaping those institutions that collectively regulate work. 
In the UK, we've seen that those tripartite negotiations between the government, the TUC and the CBI around the furlough scheme were a really important moment in addressing the COVID crisis. And we also know that the TUC and CBI have been working together over important issues around Brexit as well. While they don't always agree, and they certainly don't always represent the same positions, that's what negotiation is for. But before we can have a systematic input from employers and unions into government policymaking, they need to be at the table. And that argument for a seat at the table needs to be made consistently, loudly, clearly, if we hope to embed some of those lessons around public health, but also around work and employment over the coming months and years. Thanks very much, Mel. Now, my takeaway from that is uh, you shouldn't think too much about what you want from negotiations before you're sure you've got a seat at the negotiating table. And you need to strategize. You need a strategy to make sure that we can get that seat at the table and that we can keep it and that we can use it. And there are many ways to achieve that end. I think that's the key message I take from it. And and to talk about those methods and those ways could take up a podcast, a series of podcasts in itself. But I take it, listeners, that you, you, you take the point. And that sets the scene nicely, I think, for our special guest for this episode, Philippa Childs. Philippa is head of Beck2. Now, when Beck2 merged with Prospect in 2017, I think a lot of people, me included, I have to say, wondered exactly how it was going to work out. But as Philippa tells us, it's a process that's left both sections of the merged union stronger than they were before. So, Philippa, thank you very much for joining us on the Union Dues podcast. I mean, it's an insanely busy period for those working in the arts and the creative media. And, and, and of course, in your section, Beck2, you also have you also have communication workers. And of course, you know, we know that elsewhere in the communication sector, there's industrial strife uh, with CWU members taking industrial action, for for example, as we as we speak to record. So thank you so much for making time for this. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking about and reflecting, I suppose, on, yes, what has been a very difficult year. I suppose what one theme that's been throughout, that has been throughout the year, right from when the pandemic broke and the lockdown started, was there are many, many Beck2 members, self-employed members, freelancers, as well as those who would expect to be employed, albeit on a series of very short-term contracts, who are just left out of the of the government protection uh, for workers who uh, who can't work because of the, the pandemic. And now, I suppose there's an extra hit in the sense that Brexit is making it very impossible, very difficult for people to move around Europe uh, as a whole. Have you been able to get any movement in the government's position by showing just how problematic this is? And what are your hopes for the forthcoming budget in this regard? So I guess uh, it's been very a very frustrating time, certainly for those who have been excluded from government support schemes, many of which are you know do work in the creative industries. And I think it's it's been really frustrating for us that you know from a very early stage, way back in April last year, we were telling the government about the various groups that have been excluded for different reasons, and actually giving them good solutions to be able to resolve those exclusions. And yet, uh, you know, almost a year later, the government hasn't done anything to fill the gaps. And some of them would be incredibly easy to, to resolve. So it's certainly very frustrating from our point of view. And I think we feel... <sighs> desperately sorry I suppose that um, uh, certainly very regretful that we haven't really been able to achieve any 
significant movement in the government's position. And what we've had to do instead is to rely on, uh, well, certainly the devolved nations have, have put in place support for some groups and uh, thankfully some of the sectors charities have stepped up um, and provided some funds to support freelancers through this period and it's 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 impacted different people in different ways so thankfully film and tv are back at work they've been able to work through the latest lockdown thanks to the really good protocols that have been put in place but for our members who were freelancers, either in theatre or live event, they have literally had no work and no income from the creative industries and no support from government for, as I say, almost a year and have had to look for uh, work elsewhere um, during that period. And as you say, along comes Brexit and the whole visa debacle, um, which will impact them for certainly the, the, the months to come as well. The agony continues, I suppose, for people in in that space in the creative creative sector, because even under the arrangements the Prime Minister announced this week, the road the roadmap, it's going to be theatres, it's going to be live music, it's going to be that that area which has to wait to the last of all before it, it can come back. Now you can understand the reasons for that, but it surely therefore begets government to say we recognise there's a problem here, we need to do something, because otherwise there's going to be this drain of of talent and culture and, and capacity from the sector which can't just be turned on like a tap. Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, some people will have decided that they, you know, just can't live with the precarious nature of working as a freelancer in the creative industries and will have decided to make a career change. But for the rest, uh, yes, the agony goes on. And actually, we've this week written to the Chancellor again about the groups that are excluded, but also to say there are things that you need to do to support theatre and live events uh, through the next few months and so that they can come back. So things like putting in place a scheme to underwrite insurance for theatres, similar to the one that is there for film and TV, which will help if there's an outbreak and uh, theatres have to close down again just as they start to open. And we've also asked the government to consider something which has, again, been a a theme for several months now, uh, which is seat out to help out, which is, you know, a subsidised for every... Uh, theatre seat that someone buys we're urging the government to to subsidize another seat so that theatres can come back in in a way that is viable for them gosh seat out to help out and that puts me in mind of a of a, an initiative the government used last summer what was it oh something <laughs> my time yeah well i mean as you say these these are things that have been tried and tested and, and let's just hope the chancellor the, the chancellor's listening Mo- moving on i mean you know your 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 intray your inbox must be full to overflowing because because as well as all this, there is this ongoing kind of rumbling vendetta against public, and that's my ter- choice of word, against public service broadcasting. And it's not just, you know, as we, as we went into the pandemic, there was it was looking like there were storm clouds once again gathering over the BBC. But now we have this kind of almost unseemly rush to license partisan TV broadcasting, sort of a Fox News for the UK, which just makes, you know... I'm, it, terrifying prospect of of public service broadcasting being being um, contaminated in, in this way what's what's the current lie of the land uh, from a bet to perspective what and what are the immediate objectives that that you're trying to secure 
Yeah, you're right. I remember very clearly a conversation with my comms team just prior to the the, the pandemic really hitting us and lockdown um, being put in place, where we were talking about a planned campaign to highlight, I suppose, the the, the huge benefits and and why the BBC was so important to our democracy. And my my colleague turned to me and said oh, it's all going to be coronavirus from now on in, isn't it? And we were like, mm, yeah, uh, that 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 campaign will certainly have to go on the back burner for the time being. And I think or even, even sceptics would say that the BBC really has uh, stepped up through the pandemic and provided all sorts of useful resources for parents and, you know, lots of good drama and, you know, where would we be without television through this period and I think the BBC has played a huge important role in that but inevitably it faces challenges in into the future and I think that the new director general Tim Davey recognizes the challenges that he faces and that is really making sure that the BBC is relevant for the future and represents the whole of the UK and is seen to be bringing news which is unbiased and and you know we we all of us uh, have things that that irritate us from time to time about 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 the BBC, but I think overall, you know, there are things that we it might want to do differently. But overall, I think we really should value public service broadcasting more generally, but the BBC in particular because it is world beating and the envy of the world. So, I think uh, we will return to the campaign around public service broadcasting, why it's so important, and particularly, as you say, why it's so important as other broadcasters come into the into the public arena. I mean, you only have to look at the US, don't you, to, to see what happens if all you've got is very partisan broadcasters in play. I don't think things are quite as, as difficult for the BBC as perhaps they were pre-pandemic. The, obviously, the government decided against uh, decriminalisation of, of the non-payment of the licence fee. And so I think it's probably in a better place. But nevertheless, I think it's always important to highlight what is important in, in terms of the BBC and the public public service broadcasting more generally and, you know, remind people of all of the things that they get for their licence fee. Yeah, accentuate the positive is the old song. <laughs> the old song goes. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that... that the one, the word that comes into my mind about partisan TV, and you look at what, as you say, what what's happening in the states, and fear that that sort of stuff could be coming up our way, is, is there is a lack of dignity about it, and and, and dignity, as I know, is a strong theme in in Betu's work. Uh, he said, switching horses <laughs> almost seamlessly, uh, and and the story that caught my eye re- recently was concerns by Bechtu members at Studio Lambert, who are the people who make Gogglebox, who were saying that they were they were just they were in a toxic work culture. They were being abused when they go to work. That's not what they go go to work for. And I know the union stepped in and, and discussions are on uh, are ongoing. But that's part of a bigger campaign by the union, isn't it? It is, yeah. We launched uh, again prior to the pandemic, we just we launched our dignity at work campaign. And I think it was really an attempt to set a standard across the industry for how people were treated at work, whether they were employees, whether they were freelancers, whether they worked in a broadcaster or on a film set or in a theatre or or live events. And, And I think we 
sort of recognised that there were certain issues which were endemic across the industry and we wanted to try and collaborate with others across the industry, the BFI, BAFTA, uh, film and TV charity, broadcasters, engagers, to try and sort of set, uh, reset things, I suppose, a little bit. And I think, as you say, you, you've, you've talked about the goggle box story which hit the papers but actually it's it's not a one-off by any stretch of the imagination and it does seem that certainly in the last few months people have been prepared to talk more about what they're experiencing at work and bullying and harassment in particular seems to be a huge problem and something that the industry collectively needs to needs to address i think for the for the sake of its reputation but obviously more importantly the people who work within it yeah i mean i think that there is clearly much common ground between employers unions providers consumers as well i guess about uh, about minimum standards and I suppose it's a question of building a careful uh, but wide-ranging coalition so you marginalise the bad behaviour. It's, it's certainly an important, uh, an important area. I mean, I know in the podcasting sector, there's a lot of concern uh, about that as well. And it, it kind of goes hand in glove, I think, with issues about diversity and inclusivity, because there's an awful lot of intersectionality that I see as I talk to people between gender and race and disability and, and economic standing and, and so on. What's the Bechtu position on that? And, and how, how, do you, how can you mobilise around that? I mean, it's, you know, it's easy to identify, but it's harder to do something about, I think. It really is. And uh, you're, you're right, actually. I, I, th- I think if I'm going to be really positive and optimistic about one thing, one really important thing, actually, that has happened throughout the pandemic is that all of us in the industry have been very good actually at collaborating working together it's been really um it's it's been really inspiring actually that that broadcasters indies pact the film and tv charity or lot, lots of organizations who operate across the um across the industry have worked together to first of all highlight the challenges that the the industry has faced but also to pledge to do better in some of these uh, really challenging issues. And I think for me, equality and diversity is achieving real equality and diversity across the creative industries is a massive challenge. And we've seen over many years lots of initiatives to try to make broadcasters more diverse, to commission more diverse projects and to enable more more diverse workforce, whether that be, as I say, employees or freelancers. And yet, I would say the feeling across the industry is that those initiatives haven't really worked and that that they go around in cycles, but they don't don't really achieve uh, an awful lot. I mean, I'm an optimist. And so what I would say is that, again, through this period, following the Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrations and activity um, earlier last year, that broadcasters have stepped up they have increased the amount of resource and the the focus that they've put into achieving diversity. I think there is a recognition now that it's doubly important for them to focus on diversity, not only because you know they should be a more more diverse organisations themselves, but also 
the importance of them then being able to be, to tell diverse stories is absolutely crucial to the, their future success. And so I hope that through various initiatives, and, and certainly that that's a priority for me to try to make sure that we play a part in, in ensuring that the industry across, as I say, film, TV, broadcasting, theatre and live events, gaming, all, all look different in the future. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Betsy playing a part, but I mean, it's actually, it's, it's more than just a, a bit part here. I mean, this is a, a leading role. One of the strengths of the of the union is a kind of... Um, a, a kind of vertical structure, you know. You Bechtu represents everyone from the from from the runner to to big top draw directors. I mean, in the past, you know, people like David Putnam, Alan Parker, they've all they've all been Bechtu or, or his predecessors mem- members. Now, that's I suppose that's great in some way because it means you have the breadth of view. But equally, if that it, it absolutely reinforces what you say because if the view is overwhelmingly white and male, then you you there are voices that are missing, and therefore the product is is less appealing, less engaging and limited in terms of its its range of content. That's absolutely true. And uh, when I was appointed to this role uh, very early on, I beca- it became apparent to me what a huge challenge the industry faced in terms of improving its diversity. And, and as you say, from top to bottom, quite frankly. And so for me, if if we can, and yes, you're right, we are playing an important part. Our activists are, are really engaged and ambitious to achieve change. And if if we can make that change over the next few years, uh, however challenging the environment may be, then then that will be a huge achievement as far as I'm concerned. Indeed. It's, I mean, it certainly will be. And it, it, it leads me on to think about the, the value of the Bechtu brand, if I can put it put it that way, because, of course, some years ago, what, four or five years ago, I think it was, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Uh, Bechtu decided to tie up with Prospect. Uh, and as well as being head of Bechtu, you are a Deputy General Secretary at, uh, at Prospect. But there was a very conscious view I, I detected from, from everyone in, in, in that family that the Bechtu brand had real value real real traction and therefore it was something that should be invested in nurtured rather than absorbed into something bigger i mean would you am i being too starry-eyed about that or is is that true do you think no it is true i think it's absolutely true i guess like all mergers we have had our moments as we try to bring two groups of staff and activists together and you know two different cultures so uh, i'm not going to pretend it hasn't had its challenges well mergers are never easy never easy exactly exactly but but actually i would argue that that it has been the perfect model because retaining the bechtu brand is hugely important in the industry you know without a shadow of a doubt it was it, it, bechtu has had a a good profile for for many years and uh, to lose that would have been definitely to lose something important but to have the 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 resources of prospect and the support of the wider prospect family has has also been very important and it's enabled us to do lots of the things that we've been able to do over the last yeah as you say for nearly five years now okay so if we if we take a little look into the future and as much as anyone can see clearly into the future and we were you know we were say sitting down around christmas time looking back over the year what do you what do you hope for over the coming over the coming six seven months? Uh, well, obviously, I hope that all of our members will get the opportunity to go back to work, and I think they will. You know, as I said, film and TV production is happening now, but but my expectation is that that will really 
gain um, momentum later on in the year and there will be lots more production going on. And that obviously theatres, I think we're all feeling very sort of emotional at the thought of theatres opening again and being able to go and see shows in the West End and and in fact across the the UK and and for live events to start again. So I certainly hope by the end of the year we're looking at a position where all of our members have been able to get back to work that there are more opportunities for people to to you know be successful in the industry that there are, that diversity is is at the center of all of that and that obviously that pec2 continues to grow it, both in terms of membership but also influence well my thanks to philippa for a really wide ranging engaging discussion the range of occupational interests that pec2 is campaigning on is is really challenging impressive um the the work on dignity particularly in employment i think is 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 very important as we'll hear when we come to the radical roundup and some of the discussion that flows on from that uh, but if you want to know any more about any of the campaigns that we touched on during our discussion any of the resources that are available to support back to members or support the issues that people in the creative sector more generally have then go over to the makes you think.com website on the blog page of that website you'll find the companion post to this podcast gives you all the links all the signposting you could need you'll find it as i say on makesyouthink.com now it's time for our regular roundup of industrial news and no better place to start than with josiah mortimer's radical roundup thanks simon First up, concerns are growing over allegations that the owner of a luxury car firm has not paid his workforce to the tune of about 170 grand while they've been furloughed. Workers at Luna Automotive, which moved from Preston to Blackpool shortly after the uproar, are threatened with the possibility of redundancy, and if they keep their jobs, it will be on inferior fire and rehire terms. Unite the Union wants HM Revenue and Customs to probe the business affairs of the company's owner, Nicholas Marks, into allegations that he claimed money from the taxpayer-funded job retention scheme, but didn't pass it on to the 45-strong workforce. The workers haven't been paid since August last year. Next up, the government must extend opening hours for polling stations in May's local elections to keep staff and the public safe, Unison has said today. The union has written to Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government Robert Jenrick and the Local Government Association calling for action and assurances to ensure stations don't become hotspots for infection spread. In the letter Unison, the largest union for council staff, points out that many buildings traditionally used for voting, such as schools, will not be suitable this May. The letter also calls for more government funding to address staffing shortages caused by the pandemic. Now a story ahead of the budget this Wednesday. The unemployment rate for black and ethnic minority workers has risen at more than twice the speed of the unemployment rate for white workers, according to new TUC analysis of official stats published on Saturday. The analysis of figures from the ONS reveals that the BME unemployment rate shot up from 5.8% to 9.5% between the last quarter of 2019 and the final quarter of 2020, an increase of nearly two-thirds. Over the same period, the unemployment rate for white workers rose by just one percentage point. The TUC says that the number of BME people out of work is already exceeding the worst-case scenario prediction. Staying with the budget, the National Union of Journalists is calling for the Chancellor to stand up for journalism, with a package of measures to revitalise the ailing sector. The NUJ is calling for a levy on tech giants to create a sustainable fund that can inject much-needed investment that's targeted at grassroots journalism and news. 
The NUJ joined with journalist unions across the US, Australia and Canada this week to condemn the bullying action of Facebook and to call on governments around the world to show real leadership in protecting the public's right to information. And finally, IKEA is refusing to pay workers the real living wage, but wants to keep its status as a living wage employer, the GMB union has said. The home furnishings giant is still proudly displaying a plaque in the reception of its sites and is still listed on the Living Wage Foundation website, despite refusing to honour the 20 pence per hour increase announced by the Living Wage Foundation in November 2020. Employers have six months to implement the change, but IKEA has indicated it will not meet this deadline and has asked the Living Wage Foundation for its accreditation to be paused. But despite this, it's still boasting being a living wage employer. Thanks very much. That's all from this week's Radical Roundup in the Union Dues podcast, but you can find the full Radical Roundup on Wednesday at leftfootforward.org. Back to you, Simon. Many thanks indeed for that, Josiah. And you will have noticed that in that section was the answer to the riddle from the top of the show. What do you call a living wage employer that doesn't actually want to pay the living wage? It seems you call them IKEA. Shame, shame, shame. Other things arising from that, and I think the most standout issue is the the institutionalised racism that still exists in our society that's revealed by that TUC survey on how COVID has affected BME workers and structural racism in the labour market is what the TUC calls it and it's hard to disagree and it just it incenses me I have to tell you listeners when you have people who are critical of the Black Lives Matter movement for example (laughs) there is sustained deeply embedded racial injustice in our society and unless we recognize it and call it out for what it is how are we ever going to make progress to a just and fair society for everyone so with that in mind i'm happy to bring to your attention an event that's been organized and hosted by the gmb national race leads group and it's called maximizing black activism in trade unions now this is a web-based event obviously uh, kicks off at 6 p.m tomorrow that's the 3rd of march speakers include roger mckenzie uh, Robbie Scott, uh, Charlene Nakum, and Sarah Owen MP. And it looks like it's going to be a really useful, worthwhile, practically based discussion. If you go to gmb.org.uk forward slash equality events, you can find all the details and register to take part. Well, we're nearly out of time for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. I hope it's made you think. I hope it's given you some fuel for the fire in terms of campaigning and organising. If you like what you've heard, if you don't like what you've heard, if you've got an idea for what you'd like to hear more of, if you've got a question for the show, you can contact us by email, unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at jewsunion. If you could rate us on the podcast platform of your choice, that would be great. Really helpful. Very much appreciated. You can head over to the makesyouthink.com website where you'll find the companion blog for this episode, all the links, all the signposting, all the background you will need in that piece. My usual shout out to my friends and colleagues in the Labour Radio Podcast Network, a portal through which you can access this and around 70 other trade union or labour related shows, a real cornucopia. So my thanks to Philippa, my thanks to Josiah and Mel for their excellent pieces as usual. My thanks to you for choosing to spend some of your valuable time with us today. Whatever you're doing, please stay safe. Let's look after each other. Let's carry on being kind. And until the next episode of Union Jews, be seeing you around. Bye for now. 
The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.